0: This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club, and this is your show.
1: Well, we might now have an answer to what happens when the immovable object gets in the way of the unstoppable force. Both Manchester City and Newcastle have been pretty solid all season. Put them together and you get a pulsating 3-0 draw. That probably leaves everybody with skin in the game a little bit disappointed. Newcastle led by two and had City on the ropes, but their fans ended up happy with a point. City got away with it for an hour, but then felt aggrieved that they weren't playing 10 men for the closing stages and didn't win the game. So set aside 25-30 minutes or so, and we'll open this week's Blue Moon podcast with a look at all the talking points from Sunday's game. Also on today's show we'll put the games against Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest into the spotlight. Palace have caused City endless problems in recent years and Sam Roscoe is investigating why. Plus Forest have started like a house on fire so that might be a tricky encounter as well. I'm David Mooney. Joining me for this one is from Sporting News Dom Farrell. Hello there. And City fan Joe Butterfield. Hello how's it going? Not too bad thanks Joe. Welcome to your uh, your first podcast. Hope it's not uh, hope it's not um, a, a bad one to kick us off because it's been uh, it's been an interesting week. It's been an absolutely cracking game at Newcastle to start us off with. Um I'll start with you, Joe. The, the, the fullbacks thing once again. Guardiola, uh, Guardiola did that. He tried to flood the midfield with uh, with the fullbacks and exert a bit of pressure on Newcastle. Um, Newcastle seemed to cope with it quite well. West Ham were caught cold. Eddie Howard had been able to plan for it a bit, and uh, it got them on top. What What was your kind of reaction to the performance at Newcastle? Well, in terms of the fullbacks specifically, I
2: think it was I I didn't expect them to go as narrow with the fullbacks as they did. Um, because the obvious threat from Newcastle's point of view is Alan San-Maximam, um, who I think we all saw throughout the game that he actually did turn out to be their sort of main outlet. And we've seen, we've seen Kyle Walker so successfully in the past lock down the likes of, you know, Mbappe and Neymar on that, on that wing by just basically doing a traditional right back role of just staying out wide, make sure that you are constantly there to be in the foot race with whoever it is that, um, that you're, that you're involved with. And, you can kind of nullify that. And I think we could have all said before the game that he would be their, their, their biggest threat. So it it's, it felt strange that we sort of tried to go as narrow as possible and in doing so, ended up sort of just just um, surrendering the wings to to Newcastle. I don't know if the... I'm assuming the plan was just to never allow them to have the ball to get it back out there. But it, it, it when it turns out that so many of the players involved had... I think we can all agree that the passing in the first half was awry to say the least um that means that because the wings are free because our fullbacks are all central that they just have a very easy job of just putting it out and uh, putting it out there and just allowing a player to have a have a one-on-one most of the time with a recovering Kyle Walker who I, I, it wasn't his best game in a city shirt that I've that I've ever seen and I think it was it was it was concerning because he didn't even We've seen Kyle Walker get caught high up the pitch before, and his recovery pace has often meant that that doesn't actually matter. But uh, he, he's, he he's not normal against
1: Alan Saint Maximan, though, is he? That's the thing. <laughs> cor-
2: yeah, cor- correct, correct. But he, he he looked whether it is just because Alan Saint Maximan has got ridiculous pace, and not many players in the Premier League do have that pace, or or what. But he did look slower than I've seen him. Than I've seen him. And I, I don't know if that's just an early season fitness thing or or what. But he um. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't look brilliant, but the shapes probably didn't help him out at all either.
1: Yeah, Dom. How much of I mean, Joe mentioned the passing, in, especially in the first half. It did feel like at times, you know, City City tried to get the ball out, and suddenly it was coming back at them. How much of that was simply down to how aggressive Newcastle were?
3: Yeah, I thought they pressed uh, absolutely brilliantly, really aggressively, really effectively. I, I think the highest compliment you can pay to Newcastle, and especially considering Eddie Howe has a had a pretty much hundred percent record going into. Uh, the weekend of getting just mown down by city whether he was in charge of Bournemouth or Newcastle and then they go a goal down and to keep going for it like that the big compliment I give them is before half-time it felt like it felt like a Liverpool game it felt like a City against Liverpool game when Liverpool get on top and you can't get out because I thought Newcastle's front three but also that I think in the Premier League their midfield three of of Gimares, Willock and Joe Ellington are like sort of in terms of technical ability and physicality combined, you, you don't come across many midfield units like that. Um, and yet they, they 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 went all in on their press. They were successful a lot. The other side of that is, and this is why, because obviously this will now bring open the, oh, why don't you just have a go at City? Newcastle did it brilliantly, but any time City did get through, especially with De Bruyne and Haaland in the mood they look like they're in.
1: They got through, didn't they?
3: Yeah, there's a big threat. Outside of San Maximum. Um, Nick Pope is Newcastle's best player he has an absolutely brilliant game Um, so yeah they they, it's a combination of circumstances that that, that they went they went for it they did everything really well for most of that first half in particular obviously the crowd gets up at St James's Park it's it feels like a bit of an occasion for them at the moment because they're still in the you know within the first 12 months of the takeover they feel like things are happening Um, yeah it was It's weird. I think City and Liverpool have got to a point where you consider any points dropped outside of games against other top four, top six teams to be like a terrible result. But I think.
1: I think Newcastle will take points off teams at St James, especially at St James's this season. Totally.
3: I think City have got a. Certainly, you look at some other teams' form over the first few weeks. I think that felt like a good result for City. I also think from a City point of view, great to have that game in August. I mean, you don't want to... If that game happens in a people are sort of once again shaving years off their lives watching this
1: football. <laughs> yeah. Um, Joe, just, just finally on Walker, because um, it, it, un- undoubtedly, I think part of the reason why he didn't have his greatest game was the position's not very familiar to him coming inside. Can, can Walker be that player with a bit more of the season? If that's how Guardiola wants to play, is, is Walker the man to be able to do it? I would... I would suggest
2: probably not. I think I I could look like an idiot in three months' time when he's actually very good at it and he's playing very well. But I just feel like I feel like Walker's biggest strengths aren't really utilized when you when you put him in the middle. Um I don't think Walker's really the most ambitious of passers. So having him in the centre there doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. Like he might as well be out wide, at least able to play a triangle with a winger and Rodri. Or or another centre back like that makes more sense to me than having him just crammed in the centre with everybody else. It seems odd that we've that we've started the season doubling down on the inverted fullback thing after we've just sold Zinchenko, who was pretty much perfect for doing that. Like if you had if you had Cancelo on the one side and Zinchenko on the other, both doing what Walker and Zinche- uh, what Walker and Cancelo are doing now, that would make much more sense. Yeah, but you we know, you know both you, of those
1: players. You know City's motto, Joe is: that if it's not broken, break it. So, like that's (laughs) that's that's how it works. Like, of course, they've just sold one of the best players to be able to do this, and then do this,
2: (laughs) and then decided to go full all in on it. Yeah, it's 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 very straight. And we, you know, Walker Walker can go on to 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 develop in that role and and become better as it. But I think that I I don't think there's any doubt to anyone that Walker's much better as just like a traditional right back, and that it doesn't really it, it it doesn't make sense to shoehorn him into this role when it's not necessarily we've 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 done quite well with having. One of the fullbacks coming central and then basically playing effectively a back three with the others covering the space that's left behind from from cancelo cutting in and I don't see why we can't just continue to do that in but so there's there's probably some there's probably some you know five hundred i q pep tactical knowledge reason as to why that is preferable to having just one doing it but i for for as a as a layman just watching football, I just think just give you know let Walker do what he's best at, and that is being out wide and shut down wingers and counter attacks because especially when city play the way that we play like 99% of the threat against us comes from counter attacks. So Nullifying your best defense against counterattacks doesn't seem like the most sensible thing to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just wonder, Dom. and I floated this idea with uh, Sam and Paul on Why Always Us at the start of the week. If if you could, if you could name a midfielder kind of nominally nominally as a right back, and then have them come into the middle because they've got a better passing range and a better kind of midfield sense. I mean, if he hadn't got injured against Barcelona, I was thinking maybe Phillips might do it, you know, with, with a bit more, bit more thinking. You could name Phillips as your right-back, but he's not really playing as right-back. He's coming in to be, you know, alongside Rodri.
3: I love how this is what Guardiola's done to all of our brains, but we've just signed <laughs> England, England's first choice holding midfielder. And we're all going, do you know what? He could play right-back. Yeah, stick him at right back. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, there is, a, there is a different thing with Guardiola that whatever the problem is, the solution tends to be just to mess about with the full But whether it's them both coming in, whether it's one coming in, whether it's the goal in the Barcelona friendly uh, the other night where Cancelo gets around the outside and gets to the byline. It does like the overlapping cross in the City goal. Like, again, a fullback is changing the picture. Um, I totally take Joe's point. I, I was thinking this as well, of like, with the two coming inside. And so this isn't the first time he's done this. He did it a lot of by Munich. He then tried it for five minutes with Sanyu and Kalishi and that was like, great fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, Zinchenko would you think Zinchenko would be perfect with that. But then the other side of it is, imagine they, they do that, but you play in Newcastle and Sam Maxwell's still in that mood and you've got Cancelo marking Sam Maxwell all game. I mean, can you imagine like, how much twitter would break there carnage I mean?
1: carnage, so, absolute um, carnage yeah
3: <laughs> yeah it's i don't know i i get the impression with guardiola that he kind of the first few weeks of a season up to that september international break and the champions league coming in and i know those dates are a little bit knocked around with the world cup this year but until that point i think he he tends to come in with one plan and it's like we'll get through these games where it's sort of like once a week and a bit of carabao again different this year and then after the break is when when he thinks they've got the match rhythm and he starts getting a few more clubs out of the tactical bag, as it were. Um, I know he'd like the golf analogy. And it, yeah. it seems like that this, having the two at the back and then the three, like the four-backs on the side, like the two-three build-up, it looks like that's the plan for these few weeks. Particularly the fact he, I was surprised Walker didn't drop back into a three, like Joe was alluding to when it's like an, more of a three and a two. Uh, even when City got back in the game, he was still there in the middle. So I, I think that's the plan. And the reason for it is, as far as my untrained eye can see, is it means that with Rodri reinforced either side, you've got space for De Bruyne at Rome and space for Gundian to get beyond Haaland, that space he's creating. And, you know, that's working pretty well. Obviously, the equaliser Newcastle comes from another midfielder in Bernardo getting beyond Haaland. So, yeah, I think there's reasons for it. And I'd guess there won't be a team who exploit the downsides of it quite as well as Newcastle did at the weekend unless they're also really good.
1: Yeah. Um just while we're on the uh, the dealing with Alan St Maxim and uh, Dom uh, like could could City have done anything different with him? Because he was just in one of those moods, wasn't
3: he? I don't know someone could've leapt off the feet and took him out of the knee and not got sent off. I mean Maybe. that is so uh, that is a, <laughs> that, that is a topic we might come on to shortly, so <laughs> um well yeah, I think that it seemed screamingly obvious that you just drop Walker back to cause as good as Sir Max Man is as fast as he is, drop Kai Walker back to where he's marked Benicius Jr. and Killian Mbappe out of games. But you know, I'm probably looking at that in like being a proper basic bitch for Pep there, really. And he's uh, <laughs> he's got me covered. So there'll be reasons that he, he could go what are you want about. So yeah, I just thought obviously drop Walker back in to do more of a job on him, but Apparently that wasn't on the agenda.
1: Yeah. I mean, Joe, Stones looked, um, I mean, he looked terrified of Sir Maximan. And, and I, I don't blame him because <laughs> he just, he, he, he was a terrifying yeah. prospect. I mean, is it, is it a case of you just chalk this one down to experience?
2: Yeah, it's, wingers like that are just so, I imagine probably defenders' worst nightmare. Like they're just, they, the ball is just stuck to their feet. They're very. They're, they're, they've got the acceleration to just go from you know naught to very fast in a split second. And if you're if they're going to basically have the ball most of the time at their feet, right next to you, inside the penalty area, you're probably just thinking the last thing I want to do here is put a foot wrong and give away a penalty. So you kind of just at that point, you, you're basically restricted to just standing between him and the goal and just hoping that you can stop him from getting a shot away and. I think that uh, you know it's probably become a bit of a it's probably become a bit of a repetitive thing on this podcast already so far. But I think not having Kyle Walker there, ready to double up on him with him until he's you know done his recovery run from midfield, probably doesn't help things either. Because Walker's constantly on the back foot as he's coming towards it, so Stones is effectively the only person in front of Saint Maximin most of the time anyway. Um, so yeah, it 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 doesn't really feel like there's much else that he could have really done. Um, Ironically, I think Stones probably looked a bit worse after Diaz came on, which is a yeah. bit of a strange thing. Um, yeah, the bromance wasn't going, was it? it? It didn't seem to be clicking. No, it didn't really work. It didn't really, for whatever reason, it just wasn't happening in that game. But yeah, I think in terms of you know, be how he, how he got isolated with Sam Maximam, other than, you know, he probably did the right thing as far as, I, I think most centre-backs would tell you he did everything that you could probably do against a winger like that. Just just get between him and the goal and, and hope for the best. Yeah. maybe not take him
1: down though in Kieran Trippy, Aray and eh, Dom.
3: <laughs> Perhaps not. I think with um, it's worth giving credit to Nathan Ake actually, who has been pretty much flawless. And it's a shame he got, shame he picked up a little injury. Um, and yeah, that I do wonder if Ake just got injured five minutes earlier, and Diaz comes on in a, in a moment and a moment of calm because Ake went off. Having there was one sort of scrambled attack, they sort of just about got clear, and he'd realized he had to go. And, like, did in fairness to Ruben Diaz, who didn't have his best game by any stretch, he sort of he did get thrown into the eye of the storm a little bit, didn't he? Um, and I think that you never want to change your back four, back two, back three, whatever it is he's playing, <laughs> um, your, your back unit, you know. Early in a game, whatever the situation, you certainly don't want to change it when you've got a crowd up and pacey attackers running everywhere. It's um, yeah, it was it was another bit of the game that made that made it a really tough assignment for City, and I think you know overall they dealt with it pretty well.
1: Yeah, not Diaz's best game, but got a new underwear range. So swings and roundabouts. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's touch on the VAR stuff, Dom, because you've uh, you've mentioned it already. So uh, before we get into the, uh, the the whole talking points around it, let's hear from ESPN's Dale Johnson. He writes a lot about the use of the video assistant and the protocols behind how and why decisions are made. I started by asking him about the incident where Newcastle wanted a penalty from a John Stones challenge.
4: Yeah, so that's really the kind of incident where. Um, the referee will be expected to give that decision because it was more of a coming together. We had Fabian Shah who was moving backwards to head the ball and you had John Stones coming forward to head the ball. So whereas it's a situation where if a penalty was given, uh, I wouldn't expect the VAR to overturn it because there was a, definitely a, a case for a foul because the referee also had a, such a very, very clear, of the situ- clear view of the situation and he would likely have said it was a case of a coming together between two players challenging to uh, win a, um, a ball aerially it's, it's more likely that the VAR will not get involved for that reason.
1: Yeah I mean is there a is there ever a case where the VAR will get involved there because I mean like ultimately it, they don't want to re-referee the game do they?
4: No exactly I mean it'd have to be sort of a situation whereby the uh, defensive player is coming in far more strongly and um, really is clattering into defensive player um, or it may be that the referee when he tells the VAR what he's seen that he hasn't seen it clearly there may be actually really be a leading arm which wasn't really in the case with stones yes his arm was there but it didn't lead and really make proper contact with his opponent so if it was that situation whereby the referee hadn't seen proper leading contact with the arm then that might be a case for a review to happen and to send the referee to the monitor but if the referee has actually fully seen what the var can see then there's there's not going to be a review for that
1: yeah, now uh, that brings us on to uh, Kieran Trippier. Now I have to lay my cards on the table. I'm a City fan. I, I, you know, that that's the position I'm coming from here. Um, can you talk us through why that was uh, initially referred to the to the uh, VAR? Just because, from where I'm looking, it, it you know, it, it looks a, a pretty strong case for a red card.
4: Yeah, it is, and this comes back to what I just mentioned, really, in terms of um, the John Stones and Fabian Shah situation, in that um, when the red card is first shown, the VAR says to uh, Jared Gillett. Can you tell me what happened? Um, and he says he thought that um, uh, Trippier had caught De Bruyne on the, um, on the knee fully with his studs. And therefore, it was a dangerous ch- a challenge which uh, endangered the safety of the opponent. Now, of course, when the VAR then looks at that, there wasn't actually any contact with the knee. The contact was on the shin. And also, uh, Trippier didn't lead in with his stud showing. Now, one of the key things for engaging and safety of opponent, no, it's not, obviously, other things can apply, but it's always looked at more harshly if a defensive player goes in with a stud showing. Um, now, in this case, that isn't what Trippier did. He went in with a more of a flat foot, and the contact on De Bruyne was on his shin with the upper part of his boot. So, for that reason, that really gives a grounds for an a, a review because the referee hasn't seen what the VAR has seen so I, th- I, th- I think it was a close one i think it could have gone either way but the fact that the referee gave a different um, description is what led to the review if the referee had said i felt that he went in too strongly um, he caught the player and his only his his only uh, intention was to cause a foul then it may have been different but the fact there was a different in the a difference in the explanation is what meant a review is possible now a lot of Everton fans um, were pointing to the red card that Alan got against Newcastle. Funnily enough, last season for the challenge on Alan said out. Now, the difference there was the um, that was the red card given by the VAR, but uh, Alan went in with his stud showing, and that was and that was the only difference. Now, um, I know that the, the PGMOL feel that that shouldn't have been a red card for Alan, and that's one of the problems we have is that when we come down to VARs, it's always going to be a subjective opinion. For different referees with their different views on different incidents so you might have had a different var um on the uh, on the game of the weekend and he may have taken what the referee said and still felt it was a red card and you were not going to be able to remove that subjective level which means we'll never get ultimate consistency and we'll have situations like alan and situations like trippier which really bring slightly different outcomes
1: yeah, I'm, I'm just interested in uh, the monitor as well, because um, I, from where I'm sitting, it, it seems like the monitor is, is generally, if the referee goes over there, it's generally going to be an overturn. Um, what What would the likelihood have been really of, of, of Jared Gillett Jared Gill looking at that on the monitor and going, actually, I stand by my original decision. It might be for different reasons, but I stand by my, my, my decision to send him off.
4: Well, I think at the moment, we all expect when the referee goes to the monitor that um, he's going to obviously overturn. We didn't have a single situation last season where the referee stuck by his own decision and when the referee goes to the monitor he has um, every option uh, available to him because this is basically the VAR saying this is what I think is happening and he presents the evidence to say this is why you should change the decision but the referee still has the right to do what he wants he could change stick with the red change it to a yellow and you can remove the card completely if he wants now I, I don't particularly think it's a healthy situation that we have in the Premier League whereby There is never a rejection. And funnily enough, in Germany this season, they have actually lowered their their bar slightly because they want the referees to start having a second look. They felt that they were having far too many incidents whereby people thought there was a possible error by a referee, but there was no action being taken. And it's what we have all the time in this country where we have fans going, oh, they didn't even look at it. When in fact, they did look at it, but they didn't cross that bar for them to send the referee to the monitor. So other leagues have used the monitor far more than we do, and they have far more rejections of the monitor than we do. But because of the high bar in the Premier League, the viewpoint is if our, if our bar is so high, then when the uh, referee gets sent to the monitor, it can't possibly be anything other than, a, uh, other than an, an overturn. Now, that obviously uh, presumes that whenever the VAR looks at an incident, he's never going to get anything wrong which clearly can't be the case. So, hopefully, I would like to think that as the season goes on, we are going to start to see some rejections, but that's going to take some referees having the courage of their own convictions when they go there.
0: You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast.
1: That was Dale Johnson from ESPN. Uh, so Joe, um, you're going to get the hard question to start with. It uh, should the red card have remained for a sit for a serious foul play, whether or not uh, Trippier used his studs? Uh,
2: I think yes. Um, I don't understand how. So when when we got shown it on um, on on TV, they showed like a freeze frame of it, and I'm assuming this is what the the referee on the pitch was looking at. But they showed a freeze frame where where Trippier is where Trippier is is he has both feet off the ground. He's basically midair and has his foot at a height where it could make contact with De Bruyne's knee. Whether or not it makes contact with De Bruyne's knee at that point, for me, I think is completely irrelevant because he's not in control of the challenge at that point. Yeah, you can't intent, be- isn't it?
1: The word is intent all the time.
2: Yeah, exactly. And the, the intent was to bring De Bruyne down. And I'm sure he didn't intend to go through his kneecaps to do that. But I think at the end of the day, the the the, the strong possibility is that if De Bruyne was just, you know, if his if his knee, if he was a little bit further ahead pace-wise, he could have done. That's, that could be De Bruyne's knees gone for the season. But um, yeah, I don't understand how a referee has looked at, 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 particularly what we saw the referee looking at as we watched it on TV, and then come away and think it, was less severe than he thought it was when he saw it on the pitch. If anything, I thought the replays made it look worse. In which case, it should have been it, the red should have remained. I just, yeah, it, it's just a decision that doesn't really make sense at lot. It's it's very much like the um, Cucurella hair pull thing, where I think a lot of people later this season are going to look at incidents similar to it or or or, or look at this as a. Well, if that's if that's not a red card, then then why is this? And that's yeah. ultimately the that as as Dale mentions in his in his um in the bit where you spoke to him, I think it's always going to come down to that that inconsistency because every single game is just looked at through a subjective lens.
1: Yeah, Dom. The, I mean, the thing with this, uh, with this decision, is that th- there are two sides to it because like, you should be allowed to make a tactical foul without receiving a red card. So, so the well, pure, I
3: mean, let's hope so. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, in terms of Fernandinho,
1: Rodri to an extent as well. But um, there's kind of ways to go about doing it if that makes sense. Because if, if you just like, if somebody's running ahead of you and you just like tap the back foot so that they kick their own foot and fall over, like that's clearly not the same as piling in on somebody's knees now I'm not saying Trippier did pile in on on De Bruyne's knees he just kicked him but like there's uh, I I can't quite see where I where I kind of fall down on this and earlier in the week when we when I did Why Always Us I was really adamant that with this that this should remain a red card as the week's gone on and I've thought about it more I'm now not as sure just because so the intent to play the ball or the intent to bring the man down if the intent was to bring the man down it can't be a red card because, you know, if somebody gets past you and you pull them, shirt, that's you're not intending to play the ball yeah. You're just intending to stop them. So, like, that intent in itself can't be enough. But he's kicked his knee.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I've I've heard this in a few places of people conflating, oh, well, Man City do fouls like that all the time. They don't. You know, the one that sprung to mind was, you remember the game in the lockdown season where Leeds won at the Etihad? After Leeds have gone 2-1 up, Fernandinho did an absolutely ridiculous, like very petulant tactical foul, I think on Rafinha, um, that I thought he could have walked for. Yeah, yeah, pulling a shirt back and tripping someone up is not the same as going off the floor. See, this, this is what I thought where Trippy was, like Joe said, you, we, we, we've been told for years of, that in, on tackles, it's the idea of being out of control. And the idea of excessive force. Now, in this, in this, instance, there's not there's why, no
1: excessive force in this one for me,
3: right? Yeah, there's no excessive force, and I think that from what Dale says. And by the way, people who get cross about VAR every week, just read Dale's Twitter. It'd help <laughs> you out. He's like he's like the um, you know that fella on BBC. He's like Ross Atkins. Yeah, to explain <laughs> stuff. Dale is like <laughs> the Ross Atkins of VAR. He'll just like he'll just make your life easier. Check his feed out. Don't abuse him for telling you the rules. You know, just do that. Anyway, so. He's not gone in studs up. And it sounds like the the fact that there's no studs is what saved Trippier. And so Trippier has shown an element of control to have the wherewithal to not um, bear his studs. But the fact he's left the floor, I I think once that's happened, then you're you're asking for problems from the referee. Um, So... I think it's. I think oh, for me, it's just the fact that he's kicked him. You know, it's like yeah, I mean, because you can't just kick a player
1: as they run past you. Because maybe it's maybe that's not serious foul play. Maybe it's violent conduct. I don't know.
3: I don't know. Right. So, but bearing in mind what Dale said. And at the time, right. So the tackle itself, and also we now we know now as Dale talked about the high bar, going to the monitor now is basically has become ceremonial, just so it looks like yeah. the robot the robots aren't telling us what to do. Go and look like you're in control. So you can see how much of a bollocks you've made this decision and we'll change it. That's what it, that's what mm. the screen is there for in the Premier League now. Fine, that's how we're rolling. But I think so. once they went to the screen and then you look at more by accident than design, he isn't that high and his studs aren't up, you can see an argument. And this is the thing, so much in football isn't black and white. Even VAR is subjective. I can see how they've got to the point they've not sent him off. Where my concern is... Is the general climate within which that tackle's happening? You know, we've all been banging on about this. Um, let it flow, high bars all over the place, men at it, we've got our football whack and all that, which is all great fun until someone gets their leg broken. And yeah. I'm not sure Kieran Trippier makes that tackle last season. Because you know, there wasn't this let's just like kick people and carry on, which I get there isn't a bit. I know everyone hates diving and I know there's an appeal to that and there's been some really exciting games this year and maybe that's added to it to an extent. But what also makes games exciting in the Premier League and beyond is the best players doing brilliant things. And if players think they can get away with leaping at the tackles like that on the halfway line and the rules are it's a yellow card, bad things might happen. That That's my worry. This yeah. challenge is going to happen more now. We're going to see a lot more of this, I
2: think. Maybe not, maybe not, you know, to the extent where it's every week someone's going to go in with leaping off the ground two footed and see what's going to happen, sort of thing. But I think it's going to be a case of, you know, we're, like you say, it's going to be because of this whole. You know this this whole leniency almost looks like with what with what is a red card and what isn't at the moment i think there's just going to be more aggression just generally i think a lot of especially and we might be the team us and liverpool the teams like us might be the ones who see that against us a lot more because a, a lot of the time these teams just have nothing but aggression to sort of combat better footballers and it's going to just end up being a case where we might be the it might be us it might be liverpool it might be I don't know it might be crystal palace but someone someone if somebody's on a breakaway and you know that you can just sort of just get a, kick kick them quite aggressively, and you've got enough you've got enough of um got enough of a case study over the season so far to know that you probably aren't going to get a red card unless he's the last man. Then why would you not do that? I just, and I, that's that's what I think it sets a pretty it sets a pretty worrying precedent if it's going to be the case. I still think it's a red card regardless, but I think the fact that it's been given as a yellow is very much a sort of um, yeah it. it 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 says a lot about the kind of challenges that we're probably going to see this season.
1: Yeah. I think final word on this. I think what, what has convinced me back round to the red card side of things is the distance that Trippier is away from De Bruyne when he has to make the challenge because De Bruyne has beaten him and, uh, to be to be able to to be close enough to pull the shirt and to be close enough to ju- to to give him a little trip is one thing, but to have to leave the floor to dive across the pitch to catch them is another. I think, and that that that's the that's the element of loss and uh, of loss of control that I think. Yeah, agreed. Uh, that I think makes uh, Trippier a bit of a lucky boy. Um, let's focus a little bit on Erling Haaland because uh, the eyes were on him after uh, the eight touches, two passes thing against Bournemouth. Dom,
3: um, pretty good though, wasn't he? You've got a football, he? Um <laughs> It's like this whole, and I mean, I would include myself in this. It's, I think there's a pleasant surprise at how up to speed he is with the build-up and the dropping off and little, you know, linking play and things like that. But at the same time, I then feel stupid being surprised at that because this is a guy who is one of the best footballers in the world, is probably going to be one of the best footballers of the next decade to come, Um Probably didn't get his leg broken by someone this year. Um, you know, it's. Um, God, we're tempting fate all over the place on this. <laughs> yeah, week, aren't we? yeah I, was just, I was just thinking, I, was, I, I said he was going to be the best player for the last decade, and then I realised that the chat we just had about <laughs> tackles going in everywhere. You know, he, he's a phenomenal talent. You know, he was warming up at Camp Now the other night, and all the locals clapped because it's Erling Haaland. He's a superstar. You don't get to that level nowadays by just being a penalty box merchant. Of course, he can do everything really well. He's ah, He's very good, isn't he? And he's he's intelligent with it, it's, uh, and, you're reaping the benefits with, obviously, Gundian scored a couple of goals, there's the Bernardo goal and Gundian goal at the weekend, the goals against Bournemouth, when he was busy, not having touches, you know, Foden, De Bruyne, and Gundian, don't get that room in the penalty area last year, Um, is, it's very, very exciting, and also, I think at 3-1 down last season, or in many recent seasons, at City there, you just think, that's, this is probably it now.
1: Yeah. Two no, it's two goals behind, isn't it? Apart from the yeah. final two games of last season. That's kind of what we're talking about.
3: Yeah, and it's not it's not gonna be on any any of his highlight reels, that like goal at Newcastle, but it's like the reaction is so quick and you know, to sniff it and he smashes it in from about five yards. And yeah, it's that it's that feeling of never being out of a game while he's around. Mm-hmm. And okay, we talked about the thing with the fullbacks, and that is probably a knock-on how they're setting up to accommodate Harlan and accommodate other players around him. But the, uh, the pros far outweigh the cons at the moment. And yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. Speaking of reactions, if anybody
1: listening hasn't seen, um, harlan's reaction to de bruyne's pass for bernardo's goal uh go and seek it out it's fantastic he, he, he can't believe that de bruyne has done it as well um joe harlan though was i thought he was unlucky not to score more he had a, that was a great save from nick pope to to touch it onto the post he had one over the bar late on the one-on-one maybe could do better but pope's out at him quickly yeah i think he he, he probably he'll, he'll come off the pitch thinking
2: that he should have scored more to be honest um and that's kind of the, be- the best thing about him, really, that he-, he knows he's got the ability to do that. Um, it's it's as as Dom said, his-, his his main thing is his ability to sort of just just absorb every defender around him, and just sort of everyone everyone's so focused and preoccupied on him that it means that you know three or four other players in the box can sort of ghost their way in without really having too much trouble. Um, and likewise, sometimes it can work the other way around, where you know the goal that he does score ultimately. Is caused by him finding himself a little pocket of space because two or three players are quite bunched up at the far post. So two or three defenders go to deal with that. And then next thing you know, Haaland's in free space six yards out and he just smashes it top corner, which is just it's just great. And I think that the fact that we're coming away from games where he is scoring goals and thinking that he should be scoring more. That's you know we've 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 had a lot of conversations over the last I think all city fans have had a lot of conversations over the last two or three years about um prof, about profligacy with profligacy is that I don't know I'm, I'm I not don't, saying I it never correctly. use that
3: word in speech because I don't know how you say it so. <laughs> prof, profligacy I think
2: profligacy that's the one and uh, we've we've we talked a lot about that um, over the last two or three years because we've seen a lot of chances go to waste and you know I think with Harland we can we can forgive him missing a few chances because we all know it's only a matter of time until he scores a goal. And, you know, it proved at Newcastle, um, we obviously scored him twice at at West Ham. And even when he didn't score against Bournemouth, he was he was so good, you know, for that for that assist, that one little bit of pa- that, that one little bit of play that he was probably actively involved in. That you can kind of look at the rest of it and just go, Yeah, well if you miss a few chances, then if you're doing this other stuff as well. Which a lot of people didn't really give him the credit for, like Dom says, like I'm the same. I I, I didn't really accept. I didn't really know much about his ability link up play wise because it's not really what you see in the highlight reels from Dortmund, is it? It's, it's yeah, like, but it's I the mean, happens d- that you see.
1: Look at the link up though, uh, Joe. Like the number of times where him and De Bruyne are so far this season have been either on the same wavelength or so close to the same wavelength. There's there's a couple of times. I mean, there was one uh, against Newcastle where I, I, I described it as Harland. Uh, just deciding to play his own advantage where he'd been he'd been fouled about four yeah. or five times on the halfway line went no Kev is in I'm I'm just going to slot Kevin you're all right um yeah. and it just kind of it just kind of brute forced his way through it and you think if he's if he's got the awareness to do that and De Bruyne's you know close to finding him the other way then I mean we're only what three games four games into the season where they've played together you're like uh, that link up is coming isn't it
2: yeah, absolutely. I think there's I think the second goal against West Ham showed that it's 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 pretty much we we're, we're not even that far off it, which I thought we all I thought personally that we'd be a couple of months away from seeing that kind of link-up play like, you know, De Bruyne and and we are seeing that with Foden a little bit to be fair. Players getting used to having a striker to to give the ball to in these situations, but De Bruyne has almost seen it as like, right, how can I get the but the his first thought is almost how can I get the ball to this guy who I know can score a goal. Um and yeah, that piece of play you mentioned from 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 Harlem going the other way was just it's it's just comical watching Premier League defenders try to brush like try to knock this guy off the ball like he, he's he's brushing big physical players off the ball with with ease and then not just doing that but as you say keeping the ball putting away a good through ball to De Bruyne as well to put him through on goal and if those two like you know if if if, if two of the best players in the world can have that kind of link up relationship within this squad then. God, oh, that's is. It's even, that, that makes it even better than it already was, if that's the case.
1: Yeah, it just reminds me of uh, playing. I used to play five a side with my dad when, when uh, we were all a bit younger. And my dad is uh, like, he won't thank me for saying this on a podcast, but he, he's like 15 stone, like proper built centre back, <laughs> coming up against these um, kind of like 9, 10 stone, 18 year olds who, because my dad's got grey hair, they'd always run at him with the ball going, come on then, granddad, come on. And then my dad would just go straight through them. And I'd just stand <laughs> behind in goal, just just, just chuckling to myself. For like, do you realise what you've just unleashed? It was just like watching. Uh, <laughs> it was men against boys at times uh, for uh, for Harland and uh, and the Newcastle defence. Um, Adam's been in touch. Uh, he says if we include friendlies and the Community Shield, City have conceded three times in three different matches this season. Is there any concern with the defensive injuries and performances this season, Dom? What do you reckon?
3: Uh, we could not include friendlies in the community shield. And See, that's to that's frequently. that's my reaction as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, glass half empty, Adam. Come on. Um, not obviously, it's, it's you know I, I can brush it off. It's not the sort of thing that Guardiola will be happy about at all. And I mean, I belittle friendlies. I remember reading the thing in Marty Perinal's book that Pep didn't use to eat before friendly yeah, before games. He doesn't eat because he's too nervous, and that included friendlies. So he will be bothered. One of the things that crossed my mind when it went to extra time in the Burner Bay and like it was all going wrong, <laughs> did look down at him on the touchline and thought, God, he must be starving as well. <laughs> not, um, yeah, he's not on, eaten since yesterday. <laughs> on top of all this, he, he is famished. No, so it's yeah, it's a little bit of a problem. I, the fullbacks thing we've alluded to, that's worked better in some games than others. I think also Um it'll be better once I'm here at the Ports back fit. Um, that's gonna help because there are definitely concerns about squad depth in other areas of the squad. I don't think anyone's got any complaints about the centre-halves. And I think even though he did seem to have a bit of an error in him quite a lot last season, certainly with Cancelo being the roving right-footed left-back, Laporte being able to cover that side and also with his range of passing, again, City would have passed better through the Newcastle press. If Laporte was playing at the weekend because his passing is stunning. Yeah,
1: um, Joe, we'll finish the first part of the show with uh, a quick reaction to a couple of draws this week. First off, uh, Chelsea in the League Cup at home. Um, not really a lot to write home about that. And then uh, Champions League uh, Group G, City have got Sevilla, Dortmund, and uh, and Copenhagen. What are your thoughts? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of very nice away days
2: there, aren't there? In that Champions League group. I mean, Sev- Seville, Dortmund, and uh, and Copenhagen likes. Pretty much, uh, pretty much as good as you can get in terms of locations. I think it's a group we should probably get through. I think the um, the the Haaland Dortmund narrative is uh, is 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 nice and is um is was was always written in the stars. Um, the Chelsea the Chelsea League Cup draw. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that that game's actually our second to last game before the World Cup. Um, and I think that I think that it falls quite nicely for us fixture wise. It comes between we've got Fulham at home and Brentford at home either side of that. Whereas Chelsea have got Arsenal and they're at Saint James's Park actually on the other side of that. So um, yeah, time you know, to get the time it, to get
1: the big one back, isn't it?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, let's 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 hope that this is the start of us getting it getting it back where it belongs rather than uh, rather than going straight out again. <laughs>
0: If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Uh, Right, well, it's City against Palace this weekend and it's becoming a fixture that could bring a few of us out in cold sweats. They've started the season pretty well, so let's get a view from their camp. I've been speaking to Dan, the man behind the blog and podcast Hopkin, looking to curl one about the start to their season.
5: I think, I mean, alongside the the Conor Gallagher hole that has been left in the group... um, Check the has come in from Lons, uh, and that in itself is, is quite a, from a Palace point of view, it's quite an impressive shift because, and I get it from a neutral point of view, you know, last season was Patrick Vieira's first year in charge and we had this entire new style of play compared to what Roy Hodgson was doing and Conor Gallagher was such a big part of that for the first three or four months because he was sort of this Duracell bunny in the middle of the park. Um, But the the thing that should always be caveated from my perspective when it comes to the the system now compared to the start of last season is that we've got a fully fit and raring to go a Birey Eze. Uh, Towards the end of Roy Hodgson's time in charge, he got that severe injury. Uh, And as a consequence, we were sort of hamstrung without him for the first few months of, of Patrick Vieira's first year in charge. And it, Conor Gallagher fit the bill perfectly for that system at that time. But I, I genuinely felt all the way through from February to May that his presence within the squad was sort of limiting what a could do because they're not the same player, but they, they were occupying the same sort of space in the 11 when they played together. Whereas now you've got Chet Decoré that's coming from... Lons and he is more of a out and out defensive midfielder, someone that will sit in front of the back four, screen things, break play up and try to advance it and give off easy passes. And then you've got Ebbs sitting there potentially as a ten all season long, being given that freedom to really occupy a place in the final third. And I think it's it's very nicely balanced, albeit we still are sort of searching for that extra man in midfield that, that can be a guaranteed starter in between those two. We've sort of gone with Jeff Schlup in the early parts of this season and Will Hughes and, and Luka Milivojevic have, have pieced together bit by bit. But I think there's there's still going to be an effort from us in the final days of the market to try and get more of a, a midfielder that is comfortable in possession to be that link between Decore and the Ezek.
1: Yeah, I mean, how how are people feeling about uh, Vieira? Because last season, you know, looking from the outside, last season looked pretty good. Um, And in terms of of, of kind of how you developed this season, you've not had the easiest start to the season, but it's going pretty well.
5: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you don't want to get too carried away, obviously. But for my money, the first game of the season against Arsenal was always going to be incredibly tough because... They brought in Jesus, they brought in Zinchenko and I felt even though they missed out on top four at the back end of last year, that squad is is very young and it's growing together and I think piece by piece Mikel Arteta is building quite a strong tactical ethos there. Um, Obviously going up to Liverpool was something of a free hit, not that Patrick Vieira ever likes to talk about Premier League matches being free hits because he wants to change the mentality of the football club to try and win every week. Uh, and, you know, getting a point was obviously a fantastic result for us, regardless of the fact we were up against 10 men for a chunk of it. But, I mean, you look at the weekend against Aston Villa, probably the first what you would call bread and butter fixture for us in the 38-game season. And to, to fall behind so early on to the Ollie Watkins goal and then not only come back and equalise straight away, but be so dominant throughout the rest of the fixture was just great to see because I think it's, it's easy to sort of... Pigeonhole Palace as this side that have got a huge number of, of technically proficient players and, and we can score goals but at the same time there's a real steel and a sort of niggliness and an aggression to us as well which doesn't necessarily spill over into you know yellow cards and red cards but th- there's a real backbone there and I think that's something that the fans are really reveling in.
1: Yeah, I mean, Guardiola talks about um, playing aggressively, and he like I, I can see the same with Vieira. They don't mean it in a kind of leave your foot in way. It's very much you know getting your opponent's face and, and cause them problems. And I, when I think back to to the two games between City and Palace last season, that's that's precisely what you did. I mean, you were the only team that stopped City scoring last season. Um, like, does that do, does that kind of approach give you confidence for this weekend?
5: I mean, I, I don't want to come onto any podcast and suggest that we've got a realistic chance of taking points from Manchester City because obviously you look at the two squads and there's a huge chasm in terms of the strength in depth and the quality of those 11s respectively. But I think it's it's quite impressive after such a short time in charge that we appear to be able to defend solidly and hit on the counter-attack as we have against Manchester City last season and, and even against Liverpool a week or so ago whilst also having... The, the squad that can take on teams of a similar level to us, whether that be an Aston Villa or a Leeds or a Southampton and, and back ourselves to outplay those on our day. So obviously up at the Etihad, it's going to be a back against the wall job for the most part, but it, it's strange. We are still a counter-attacking side, but we're a counter-attacking side with with genuine quality. So it, it's not just sit deep and hope to hit on a break. There's, there's real thought uh, process that goes into the counter-attacks. You only need to look at the goal that Zaha scored up at Anfield. You know, the ball fell to Abir he's, he's got past his man very nicely, played a lovely ball through to Wilf, and he's put the ball in the back of the net in probably a yard of space that he had to beat Alison Becker. And he said himself post-match that he's looking to get off these shots on target before the keeper has had a chance to set himself and it's exactly what he did against Aston Villa with Martinez at the weekend. So we do carry that threat and hopefully it's something that we can show again this weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a coincidence though, is it? That you keep coming to City and, and, and getting results. I mean, you, you think back to, I mean, December 2018, you won 3-2. Uh, got the two all draw in in, in twenty twenty. You know, you won there last season. It's like it is a it is a repeated pattern here that you keep coming to City and, and causing City problems. Is there a reason beyond it just happens to be this game every weekend, or is there is there something more that that Palace manages because it's been different managers as well a lot you know down the years? Is there something specific they're doing to stop City playing?
5: I mean, I, I'm not an expert in City compared to somebody that watches them every week, but from an outsider's point of view, looking in. It does feel to me as though it's not necessarily an Achilles heel, but playing on their counter-attack with that quality in possession is something that can catch any side cold. You know, Manchester City have got so many quality players in that final third that they could almost, even though you've got the most highly talented and and driven players in that group, just switch off for a split second and get caught. And I think that potentially is the reason why we've been able to score so many goals on the break. You look at the second goal... From last season's win that Conor Gallagher scored, you know we were we were one nil up there, up against it defensively. But Patrick Vieira brought on Michael Elise at one nil up. That's not something that you would have seen Roy Hodgson necessarily do, and he had a key role to play in the second, finding the back of the net. So there's an element of risk and reward, but you do sort of have to back yourself to take your chances as and when they are right. And I, I think that is going to be very similar to the game plan this weekend. But as I say, I, I don't want to make some sort of grand proclamation, it will still be a, a fantastic point if we can get it, let alone all three.
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about the squad then in that case because um, if, if Palace are going to carry on their, their record at the Etihad and get a good result, uh, who's going to do it, do you think?
5: Well, I mean, I've just mentioned Michael Elise there. He's not actually started a game for us this season but I think he, well, he did have an injury throughout the summer and as as a consequence only had a shortened pre-season, as it were. He hasn't actually played for us in pre-season. I would imagine, given what Jordan Ayew offers us from a defensive winger perspective, we probably will go with him again from the start. But it's, it's for my money at least, a case of us staying in the game until around 60, 65 minutes and then trying to exploit either the need from Manchester City to go and push all out for a winner, or to just remain resolute and, and hit on the break as and when we can, because whenever you've got a side that's got the, the finishing prowess of John Felipe Mateta, it's got Zaha, it's got Eze, it's got say it's got Edouard potentially, you have chances to actually exploit those gaps as and when they come. Um, and it may sound very basic and obvious, but that to all extent is all we can really hope for because if we try to match you pass for pass and try and have as much possession as Manchester City will it's just not gonna it's not gonna work. So it sounds a little bit defeatist from kickoff but it was the same up at Liverpool you know you have to take your victories or your chances to exploit gaps as and when they come.
1: Yeah I'm, I'm interested in you've, uh, you've mentioned Zahar a couple of times and, and when, when we spoke to you last season I was very keen to kind of get away from the, the idea that Zahar is Crystal Palace if you know what I mean um, but I'm really interested to see how he's developed in a team that is a lot it feels like, like Palace are a lot more suited to, to kind of giving him the chance to shine if that makes sense.
5: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's difficult for Wilf. We've got this contract saga that's been going on pretty much ever since he signed his five-year extension four years ago. Um, Whether or not he ends up signing a new deal or whether he leaves, he's still up in the air. It's, you know, expiring at the end of this season. But I mean, I think I've said to, to you and many other people over the years, To to people outside the Crystal Palace bubble, it's very, very difficult to explain just how important Wilfred Zaha is to our football club. You know, he's been with us since he was a child, obviously had that brief stint away in uh, Manchester. But he's our all-time leading Premier League goal scorer. He's our fourth highest appearance maker of all time. He's now got 64 goals in the Premier League, which is a quite astounding number, in my opinion. Um, and as much as he has been the lightning rod for many years, now that you've got players around him, like your Eze's and your Decore's and Michael Wellises, it does remove some of that weight. But in a sense, it's enabling him to focus on things that he just tries to do week in, week out, rather than feeling that weight of expectation to be the man who carries the team. And I think you're seeing that in terms of his goal returns. He's also, at 29, someone who appears to have really developed in terms of his finishing. You know, there's a lot less wasted energy now. He looks for the most direct route to goal. Uh, And I can fully see him, given the fact that he's on penalties, going on and scoring 20 this season. I, I don't think that's beyond the realms of possibility, given the amount of service he's likely to get with the creative players that we have running throughout the squad
1: yeah and uh, three goals already this season's not uh, not a bad return from three games so uh, definitely going to be Absolutely, dangerous yeah. this weekend um Dan before we let you go we got Charity back coming up what's uh I like to give my prediction over to uh, to our guests so uh what's your score prediction for the weekend
5: well I went on to a Twitter space ahead of our game against Liverpool uh, last week and I just can't allow myself to not back Palace to get a result. I think it's, it's, it's poor of me, regardless of what my head might be saying, to to try and you know play it down. And I said at the time on a Liverpool podcast that I fancied us uh, to get a victory on the break. I will say exactly the same again. 1-0 Palace, probably Zaha uh, racing through from his own half and slotting past Edison. So yeah, we'll go with that.
0: This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast.
1: So that was Dan from the blog, Hopkin looking to cool one. Um, let's bring in Forest fan and journalist, Nick Miller. Hi, Nick. Hello. How you uh, doing? So not too bad, thanks. Um, so the last time we had you on the show was about 10 months ago. It was for uh, City Heaven, City Hell with Nottingham Forest, And we finished that show, I think, I think, if memory serves me well. It was like I was talking about Forest struggling last season because of, uh, you know, it being a nice comeuppance for what happened with Gary Crosby and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> And I'd, like I, I don't know, you got promoted after that. So what happened?
6: Uh, well, we appointed what uh, can only be described as a god as a manager. <laughs> that, that kind of helped. I think it might it may have it seemed to vaguely remember it was just around the time that Christian got sacked when we we spoke last. So that was the I mean the the, the catalyst. And yeah, Steve Cooper managed to perform miracles and sort of knit a team together from a collection of kind of spare parts and. Um, and that's what he's he's doing again this summer, but a, a, a collection of rather more expensive spare parts this time.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, how's life back in the Premier League? It's been a while.
6: It has been a while. If it, it still feels weird. It still feels. I mean, it's. It, it's I mean, it, it sort of feels embarrassingly small time. But it is the, the novelty of being back and match of the day, as much as anything. That kind of thing is is um, hasn't the novelty hasn't worn off yet. Anyway. Um, Although I kind of, I do have the the sort of fear in the back of my mind that if if we absolutely tank from here on in, I mean I'm con- I'm conditioned to be kind of used to the sight of Forrest losing, but just not when everyone else is watching. So. <laughs> um so that could get quite embarrassing
1: yeah you don't want the rubbernecking do you? i mean i i oh, am going to say this yeah i am i, I can't believe i'm going to own up to this at this point now but when i was uh when i was a kid and city got back into the premier league in uh 2000 um they lost the opening day against charlton they got battered 4-0 and i went to that uh, and I was like, this could be a long, hard season. And the second game, they beat Sunderland 4 2 at Main Road. And I remember walking out of Main Road being really excited to get to go and watch it on match of the day. And I kept uh, I, I recorded the highlights every week and just kept like kind of like video diary of City's games. And I used to love like rewatching that game. And Dom, what happened at the end of that season?
3: Got relegated. I quite, com-
1: some... quite comfortably relegated in the did, end, really. Did,
3: did, did you did you keep up with the match of the day video all the way through? Most of the season, yeah. Wow! Yeah, yeah, there's some Commit- some rot- commitments in there. Some absolute terrible
1: games, and it was it was it was good as well because uh, City didn't. Funny, funnily enough, didn't release an end of season video for that one. Um, <laughs> Joe, obviously, we're talking about a pair of games for City, Palace at home and and, and Forest at home as well. Uh, just starting with Palace. Um, are, are you traumatized by what's happened against Palace in recent years? Uh, yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, I think whether it's whether it's. Um, whether it's Andros Townsend putting a-, a worldie into the top corner from absolutely nothing, or. Or Fernandinho rolling it
1: into his own goal, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, or Wilfred Zaha just running free and just having a one on one. It's just, yeah, it, it's a game. Like they're a team that tend to have, because of the, 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 the style of attacker that they have, just like fast wingers, and that, as we mentioned before with the Newcastle game, that's that kind of counter-attacking style that we can offer. It's basically the way that most teams go at us because they'll sit back and absorb some pressure from us and then just unleash pace on us and go in the other way. Um, they, they they seem to have the way of playing that, that can beat us quite, that is most likely to beat us. So, um, yeah, I, I rarely go into Crystal Palace games, not even, not even at the Etihad. I, I rarely go in thinking that we'll win because I just generally just accept we're going to... It's like Spurs at home. I just accept we're probably going to drop points. Yeah, I'm I don't, uh,
6: it's, sorry if I, I just want to butt in here. I really, I'm really apologise for being this guy, but the idea that trauma is a team taking four <laughs> points off you—it's it's just a, a, another kind of emphasis that this, the that you, you, that City and Forest exist in a very, very different worlds.
1: Yeah, um, but I mean, you've won European Cup. City haven't done that, Nick.
6: Yeah, I mean it was before I was born, but I'm still going to bask in the glory.
1: <laughs> um, how are, how are Forest playing this season? Because um, I, I'm going to get Dom's thoughts on on City against Forest shortly, but I kind of I kind of want a bit of insight into into how you think they'll approach this game because, like, as a newly promoted side, like you, it's, you're obviously up against it a little bit, but you've you've signed some pretty good players this summer.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little a little bit difficult to tell, because just because I mean, as you said, we've we've signed so many players, we're so good some good players, in, but a large number of them. Um, so it is a, it's a tiny bit difficult to tell exactly how we're going to play because everyone's sort of still learning each other's names and getting used to uh, how we're playing. Um, I, I, th- I think it will be very much kind of a, a similar idea to um, what you mentioned with Palace. There, it will be. You know, nominally Forest his player sort of 3-4-1-2 system but that will be you know, very much five at the back for most of the game. Um, sort of trying to you know, dig in and hit City on the, the break whenever uh, using like Brennan Johnson and probably probably more Gibbs-White will be playing that game I, I reckon that use kind of their pace to um, try and sort of nick something on the break. So, yeah, it, it is... Uh, they, they, everyone is still kind of getting used to each other and just figuring things out at the moment. But um, I kind of imagine that that will be, be the game plan.
1: Yeah, you've, you've had a couple of tasty games, I thought, so far this season. Mm. Um, and on top of that, I, I watched you against Liverpool in the FA Cup last season and I thought you were really unlucky not to knock them out of that. <coughs> yeah, we were.
6: That, I mean, we were absolutely flying at that point. And, and, you know, that Cooper had had probably about four or five months by that stage to get everyone on the same page. Um so yeah, this season it's, it's the first three games have been quite encouraging. Like well off the pace against Newcastle in the first game, one but we're a bit unlucky. Oh, sorry, one. Uh, but we're quite lucky against West Ham in the second game, and then Everton uh, last weekend, um, pretty unlucky not to win. Actually, we we're, were much the better team, which you know might not be saying a huge amount uh, given that Everton looked in quite the state but um it, it, the, there are signs of uh, it, even though it's kind of you know only three games and we are trying to fit together i think it's 16 new players at, the, at this stage I've, I've lost track it'll probably be there'll probably be a couple more by the time this goes out um <laughs> but uh yeah it's encouraging signs so far but um but you know we've got uh, Tottenham uh, this week at home this weekend and and obviously City on Wednesday, so the encouraging signs could be snuffed out pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. Um, Dom, the uh, The last time Forrest came to the Etihad, in fact, the only time Forrest had been at the Etihad, uh, wasn't something to write home about. So I'm kind of hoping for a better game this time around.
3: Yeah, that, that was a very, very bad performance. Um, also, <laughs> Wayne Bridge got introduced on the pitch, and that that it, it kind of seemed to set the tone for Wayne Bridge's City career, even though he wasn't playing um, on that, that FA Cup game. Um yeah, I mean, as Nick says, you know, Forrest playing, you know, a very well-defined formation. Everyone, even allowing for a team thrown together quite quickly with a lot of new arrivals, it looks like already people know their roles. I mean, I think from from an outsider's point of view, it, they did look disjointed against Newcastle, and then the West Ham game, you know, there was a clear plan. There were people like Hugh, and I thought Neco Williams was great in that game. Um, really good from right wing back. Um, and yeah, Everton are Everton at the moment, but City have had a a bit of a history under Guardiola of having problems against a good sort of 3-4-3, three, 3-5-2 three, three, that can bed in and counter-attack well. So Forrestic, a few boxes for going well. Um, and also, yeah, Cooper's great, isn't he? I mean, City had that FA Cup tie at Swansea in the, the domestic treble year. Where they really got away with one, really.
1: Yeah, go. absolutely, shouldn't have gone through that tie. <laughs>
3: down, got a howling penalty, an offside goal, and there was no VAR in the FA Cup that year. So, but that's where you think also, City do have a very good record against newly promoted teams. Partly that's because there's like lots and lots of really good players, and they should be beating newly promoted teams. But also, you you imagine this one against the Steve Cooper team. Guardiola's going to be in the tactics bunker pouring over all sorts of ages. in he he'll be it, it's not one where there'll be complacency because he'll be sort of he'll be right on point and people will follow
0: ad-free episodes are available on Patreon sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast
1: what well, what do you think Cooper will do, Nick? Because, um, like, like Dom says, he's got if he if he has a tactical master plan for this game, that's that's sometimes where City struggle because, like Newcastle at the weekend, they had they had a tactical master plan to beat City, and it caused them no ends of problems for an hour.
6: Yeah, it will be it will be interesting. He's been quite, uh, although you know there are a lot of new players, and it's kind of unavoidable. Uh, Having quite a few of them in, in the team, he's tried to sort of ease players in um, a little bit more. So you kind of half half think that he'll play as many sort of familiar players in a game like this as possible. And admittedly, that isn't that isn't too many. But you know, we're probably talking sort of five of the team that were in that were in um, around last season. But uh, as well as the kind of. The, the the standard you know sit back and soak, try and psych up as much pressure as possible and uh, hit on the break. I wonder whether they'll be you know like for, we've signed a couple of new centre backs, but I imagine that, that it will be the same back three as started most games last season. Um, you are right to say that uh, Nico Williams has probably been the best player in the the three games so far. He was he was superb against Everton as well. So. Um, and he is a kind of specialist wingback, really. So he will there'll be a lot of emphasis on on him to kind of push on down down the um, uh, down the right. So I, I wonder whether you know whether Guardiola will sort of try something to sort of funnel a lot of stuff down. The, the city left so to it, it, as much as anything to kind of pin williams back and cut off what of, what will probably be one of the main kind of counter attacking um strategies so yeah i i i, 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 I this the, the game will be what is it when's the transfer deadline is it is it uh, on on Wednesday or the day after
3: it could it, be it, wednesday you know yeah yeah no, it is thursday it is thursday i no. hope brilliantly well, i've got i've got the day off work on deadline day <laughs> sensation lovely
6: um, it, it's oh just you know who knows how many more players will, will sign in. The transfer window started off uh, quite sensibly. Everyone, you know, that all the signings were sort of fairly logical. Even Jesse Lingard, there was kind of there was a sort of logic to it. You
4: know,
6: one year deal, see what you can do, kind of thing. But it seems to have gone a little bit more haywire in the last uh, couple of weeks when the you know the um, the stark evidence of actually being on the pitch has been presented to the owners. Uh, yeah. So you know who knows which players will actually be available to Cooper by Wednesday. And, you know, if if uh, Forrest get a bit of a hosing, then uh, you, the, 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 they'll have the whole of Thursday to sign a bunch more as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Joe, I, I, I'm interested in how you think Guardiola will approach this as well, because the fullbacks thing... Like he could he could go with it again. Um he could go for a little bit more of a of a traditional setup. Um but the one thing that I'm 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 nervous about is teams with a bit of pace that might press City in the middle if they pull the full backs into the centre. And if if Williams is gonna cause havoc down down one flank, the last thing you really want to be doing is is leaving the flanks quite open.
2: Yeah, I mean ask God asking me to try and predict what Guardiola might do is a bit of a bit of a task <laughs> in itself, in it. I've um I think yeah, I, I, I think it would be kind of it would be a bit strange to, to leave the flank so exposed when when if Forrest are going to set up with wing backs, um, you you want ideally at least one person out there to sort of help put like you know either keep them in check or, or pin them back. I don't know if we'll play, you know, we'll play some maybe wider wingers to to, to do that. We'll probably put maybe put Foden out on the left and then put Mares out on the right, maybe sort of keep those two occupied so they maybe have less time to worry about going forwards. But in terms of what the I, I don't personally. I don't personally understand tactically the reason why having fullbacks come into the center is better than having them out wide. I just don't have that. I just don't have that tactical knowledge to understand why one would be better than the other. So I'm not sure which he'll go with. I think I think based off the evidence of the first couple of games we've had, first few games we've had so far, I would be shocked if he doesn't do it again because he's done it against West Ham and done it again against um, against Newcastle uh, the weekend just gone. So I wouldn't be shocked to see it again, but. You know, if 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 the if the problem again, if the counter attack is going to be what we have to worry about, and and wide players who can who can provide that counter attacking threat, then I would like to see something maybe a bit more traditional. Certainly with Kyle Walker, anyway, maybe something a little bit more traditional. But um, yeah, I, I, who knows what he'll do? It's just a, it's a roll of the dice when it comes to Guardiola in these games. I have a I have a horrible feeling he's going to do something. Could because it's um, because it's Steve Cooper and like as Dom says, he's probably going to get his tactical hat well and truly on. I have a feeling we're going to have a team sheet where a lot of us are going to go look at one or two things and go, "What? Like, why have we done that?" And it's going to be a, a, a it's going to be a, a, a either a tactical masterclass or a Pep Guardiola overthink, depending on what the result says. Yeah, Dom. Uh,
1: last City player to uh, to score a goal against Forest.
3: Um, f- Sean Gota. So no, Sean it was Goulter. no, it was it
1: was the uh, Gota scored the last one to score at the City ground. It was uh, Darren Huckabee. Um. Got a hat-trick in 2002 at Main Road. Um, we, we talked about that one on the Heaven and Hell with Nick. So, uh yeah, that was that, that, that. That's a that's a record that could do with changing this week. I think um, the other thing, the other one I was trying to think of is uh, other than Forest and Mitchelland, I can't think of anybody else that's got a hundred percent record at the Etihad. So uh, <laughs> could be uh, could be quite an exclusive club uh, that uh, that Forest stay <laughs> in should they should they walk away with the points. Um, let's make some predictions. Funnily enough, nobody saw the three 0 with Newcastle coming, so we stay on one hundred and twenty pounds raised for the season so far. Uh, we're collecting for the Man City fans food bank support. They're helping the Trussell Trust fight food poverty in. May. Manchester. The group will be back again between 12.30 and 2.30 on Saturday. They're under the bridge by ASDA, so please pop down with a donation if you can. In the meantime, William Hill is giving each of us a £10 correct score single, and we're donating the winnings to the group as well. Uh, we'll start with the Palace game. So, uh, we heard earlier on that uh, Danny's back in Palace to go out and get a 1-0 win at the Etihad. That's 45-1, to and he'll add £450 if he's right. Um,
3: Don, what are you having for Palace? I'm going for the end of the as Nick points out, very, very relative hex and City to win two one.
1: Uh, two one is uh, ten to one and a hundred pounds, Joe. Uh, I'm staying well and truly within the hex and uh, going two two. Uh, it's twenty eight to one and two hundred and eighty pounds if you're right, and that brings us on to the uh, the, the main event, Nick. Uh, what are you having for <laughs> uh, for Forest uh, first visit to the Etihad in uh, over a decade?
6: Well, I'm going with the kind of emo- emotional protection, pessimism, prediction of a 4-1 uh, win for City. Um, you know, it's going to cause me enough pain uh, watching this most week, so I might as well get some predictions right.
1: Well, if it happens, uh, you'll add 140 quid to the pot, so it's 14-1. Uh, to 1. So, uh, in many ways, I do hope that you do suffer that pain. Um, <laughs> Joe, what are you having... <laughs>
2: I did not know. I'd have to give this prediction with a with a Forest fan actually here. I feel bad for saying this now, but it's that uh, I'm going. I'm going four nil for this one.
1: Four uh, nil is uh, thirteen to two and sixty five pounds.
3: If you're right, Dom. I like how you went through all the pitfalls there, and it's like, oh, actually four um, nil. <laughs> I, I've gone with a slightly more conservative three
1: 0 Three nil is uh, five to one and fifty quid if you're right. Uh, just a little peek behind the curtain. Joe actually said three nil as well, but you got in there first, so um, there yeah, there you have it. Uh, remember, you got to be eighteen or over to gamble. Prices can change, and for more information on responsible gambling, head on over to BeGambleAware.org. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I would say best of luck, but um, you know, I, I genuinely don't mean it. So
6: it's uh, no, you, can, you, you we, we can't finish on an insincere note.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll wish each other the best after that Wednesday night game. I guess. Sure.
6: Yeah, let's let's go with that.
1: Right, well, as we've been talking about last season, Crystal Palace became the 10th team to go unbeaten in a single campaign against Pep Guardiola's City. The other nine, if you're interested, are Chelsea, Everton, Leeds, Liverpool twice, Manchester United twice, Middlesbrough, Southampton, Tottenham three times, and Wolves as well. It might be a bit of a surprise, though, that it's taken Palace so long to add themselves to that list because it feels like they're always taking points off City these days. We've got Sam Roscoe to look at how they've turned into a bit of a bogey side.
7: Weirdly, it was probably City's home game against Crystal Palace in 2017 that gave us the first proper taste of Pep Guardiola's version of the team.
8: It was a good performance, but uh, I remember sometimes we make some quite similar performance within a score goal. Today we were able to do that, and that's why the result. So at the end, I am pretty convinced that the, the, the boxes uh, make the difference in today in the football in, uh, Today was a goal, and nowadays we were not able to do that.
7: That was the manager's reaction after the game, which finished 5-0. He'd been saying throughout the whole of his first season that City's issues had been in both boxes, but this was perhaps the first time everything seemed to click.
8: I'm pleased because finally in our people, the staff and the players can enjoy the last 30-35 minutes with, without the, that pressure for the result when we can play a little bit better.
7: City finished that season with four wins in a row. The form continued after the summer and it became a run of 70 points from a possible 72. It contained a Premier League record 18 successive victories. A sequence that was broken by, you guessed it, Crystal Palace. Roy Hodgson was their manager by this point. We're very proud
8: of the performance. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was excellent in terms of their tactical discipline. I thought it was certainly excellent in terms of their commitment and their focus and their determination, their concentration, because you really need to fall asleep for a brief moment against teams of this quality and they punish you with the level of player they have.
7: In the eight games since that 0-0 draw, Palace have become a bit of a problem side. Last season for example, they, along with Spurs, were the only away team to leave the Etihad with three points. It was revealed in the City Plus documentary, Champions Again, that after that loss, defender Enric Laporte apologised in the dressing room for his performance. His error led to the first goal and then he was sent off just before half-time.
9: Uh, it's never easy to say that but after yeah, I decided to, to apologise to my, to my teammates. They de- deserve it, uh, they try their best until the end. Maybe if this game was me, the next next one will be another one and we have to to be all together. Palace
7: simply stopped City playing. Here's The Athletic's City correspondent Sam Lee to explain what made their game plan so troublesome.
10: There was two men between City centre-back and Rodri, almost like stopping the ball going through to Rodri. But then if the ball did go through, I remember Palace would have two midfielders who would be ready to race in and like pressure him really aggressively and i remember romeo doing that for for southampton as well so that kind of stopping Rodri get the ball is kind of one of like the basic way of looking at it and it kind of disrupted city but obviously then you've got players shuffling across and i think palace were following bernardo silva around as he went from kind of a deep position out wide
7: sam says this left city with no
10: options that's where the first goal came from when laporte i think it was tried to get the ball into Rodri. When Laporte got sent off, actually, it wasn't like Palace kept doing that throughout the second half. As far as I remember, they just sat back and defended. City played really, really well with 10 men. I think Jay-Z who scored, it was disallowed and then that kind of killed them and-, and Palace scored on the break. But I mean, I suppose you could say the damage was done in the first half and it is that kind of rough outline of stopping the ball getting into Rodri and then if it does, get amongst him like, very aggressively. This was
7: Patrick Vieira's Palace and their approach was different to how Roy Hodgson had caused City problems. The 2018 game where Andros Townsend scored a wonder goal saw City play badly, largely of their own making. Vieira though, made City play badly.
9: It's really good when you come into a place like that and you have a game plan and we stick to it and, and players do even more than what we, we plan it. Um, you know we had so many blocks, we stopped crosses, every time they managed to do a cutback there were players there um, we make it really difficult for them and we stick together in a difficult period and I think that's, that is why we, we didn't concede today, so I really want to praise the the personality and the work ethic of the teams today."
7: After that 0-0 draw at Selhurst Park later in the season, Vieira became the only manager to stop City from scoring that year.
9: When you play against those kind of teams, those kind of players, you need to be a little bit uh, lucky, I will say, and we force that luck to be in our side. So I'm really pleased with the team performance. We run so much that when we get to a position, it's really difficult to play with more test on, on the final pass, I think our final pass was was really difficult because of the the run that we. We had to match.
7: As we saw with Newcastle on Sunday, City can find it challenging against well-organized teams that are very aggressive in their pressing. But that's not to say that Palace didn't cause issues when sitting deep. Here's a disappointed Guardiola after a 2-2 at the Etihad in January 2020. City had gone ahead in the 87th minute and then conceded a stoppage-time equalizer.
8: We tried to. You know, with everything, so many crosses and right there, so we arrived feel few. The corner in the last minute of the first half, the second goal in the end, that we can avoid it. So, but the spirit was there, we tried and we tried. At the end we, we came back, it was a pity at the end. Dropped two points in this way, but it's football and you have to learn for these situations.
7: That was the year after Palace won 3-2 at the Etihad as well. Out of the blue, it seems like City have a brand new bogey team. His former defender Nader Manua's thoughts on why.
11: It's not necessarily about, say, how good they are at keeping the ball, how exceptional they are at defending. I think they are good at that, but it's more so the people that can, say, offer a threat in behind and carry the ball the pitch. As you see someone like a Eze or a Wilfred Zaha or Jeffrey Slop, people like that, what they offer is something which you don't really want to play against. So for City, they will have the opportunity, they'll have the ball. But as we kind of saw in the game against Newcastle, you know, some sloppy turnovers and the like can offer encouragement to people who can go the other way and they will go the other way with full commitment. So then as a consequence, you look for the matchups and overall they provide very tough ones.
7: He explains how players perceive bogey teams.
11: As far as like bogey teams go, I don't think that's a real thing. I think that's more of a perception from a fan base because as a player, you know, you win a ton of games, you lose some games and the like. We don't necessarily enter any particular game expecting the results go any particular way because the makeup of it always changes. Whether it's the the context of where it is within a season, you know, the team that you have out, the team that they have out, you know, there's usually so much more to it. A team like City or a dominant side, they'll play the game and they know that you know if they perform to their best, they'll likely win. But as is the case with most of the times when they don't. No, it's not necessarily because the other teams outplayed them, it's more so the other teams taking their opportunities and the dominant side have not performed to their absolute best on that day.
7: All of that said, with Palace's recent record against City, especially at the Etihad, there may be a few nerves ahead of the game in the stands. The way Newcastle put City under pressure last weekend may have given a few fans the jitters. So, what better way to put that to bed than with a comfortable, no-nonsense win? Let's have one of those on Saturday, please, City.
5: I'm Darren Huckabay, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast.
0: The Blue Moon Podcast. If City won't let you down on the pitch, let us let you down off it instead.
1: That was Sam Roscoe looking at City's recent record against Palace. Um, Time to finish with some listener questions. Get yours in for next week on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us as well through the website. Just go to bluemoonpodcast.com and fill in the form. That's how Aaron's got in touch. He says, Following on from your discussion last week about whether Gundogan has been undervalued or underappreciated during his time at City, I agree entirely as someone who wasn't his biggest fan until very recently. It's only when you look back at the key moments he's been involved in or on the pitch for that you realize how key he's been to Guardiola without ever having been a first name on the team sheet sort of player it got me thinking since the 2008 takeover which players are the most undervalued we all know the key roles that the likes of silver aguero torre company Heart played but which players had a key impact in getting us to where we are today without getting the recognition that they probably deserve um that's a hell of a question and dom i'm going to give you the first dibs on uh, on an answer
3: right yeah so i've got i've got a couple of sensible ones and then a little bit of a provocative one um i'll do the sensibles first uh Gael Clichy and Jolene Lescott, I think in that first Mancini title winning back four, obviously Zabaleta and company, the big heroes, understandably so. But uh, that defence got much better, um, unplanned after Colo Torres' uh, drugs ban, when Lescott came in and they became a formidable partnership in the company. And I think Gael Clichy, arri- Clichy arrived in that summer when Aguero and Nasri arrived. He was pretty unheralded. I think he might have cost about 10 million quid. And obviously, Kolarov was the you know showbiz maniac moments that you got from him that were great. But Kalisch was just a really solid, neat and tidy fullback who was yeah a big part of everything that happened in that era. My um, my other one is I can sense the trepidation here already. Yeah, I, I realise <laughs> I've dug myself a hole. No, seriously, looking at some of the reactions over recent weeks, and admittedly, Twitter isn't real life, but some people seem to way a couple of snarky grumpy interviews by Raheem Sterling as extinguishing exploits such as becoming the joint 11th highest scoring city's history winning all the trophies he did been such a key guy in the 100 point season and the treble winning season it's like if you're that annoyed at a couple of salty interviews from Raheem Sterling after all he did at the club I think you're underrating Raheem Sterling and I think you are not really paying much attention to the sort of the tenacity and bloody-mindedness and just never to always get back up for more, always get back up to miss another chance from four yards, etc. That <laughs> you know, he's the most relentless sort of footballer of his generation in England, Raheem Sterling. Um so do you expect him to be happy about losing his place city? No, but for God's sake, it's like the, the some of the comments I've seen about oh well that 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 that's him he's, you know he's sort of you know dead to me sort of thing it's like I think you're underplaying how important he's been to all of this if you think what was it 100 now many goals all, 130 goals in all competitions there or thereabouts is the same as a couple of short grumpy interviews with Jess come on yeah give so uh,
1: so Joe uh, it's obviously not Raheem Sterling but who would you go for?
2: I think so. I, 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 as someone who, as someone who was annoyed by the interviews, I'm, I'm definitely not picking Sterling, but, um, I think, I think, come um, on, Joe. No, 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 he's, he's still, he's still a brilliant player, and that is, it is, is a correct answer that you've given there. I think it's, yeah, he's, he's definitely undervalued by a lot of City fans, even when he, when he was here, let alone after he's gone. Um, I think for me, I've gone for similar to sort of Dom in terms of the, the defensive side of that 2012 um campaign. i I've, I've thought of Gareth Barry was the first one who came to mind Good show. um him him sitting in front of the back four and doing that very sort of that quiet it's a role that's become more appreciated since Gareth Barry has stopped playing football um you know nowadays the, the you and you Cantes and that kind of thing have, have, have sort of made the defensive midfield position a bit more sexy than it used to be but um and what you a player know, for the was, tactical foul as well <laughs> oh yes, exactly. That's what, that's what we all love, and um, yeah, when he was when he was playing, sort of, he was not as much of a part of that defensive solidity of that squad um, as 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 the back four. That was, I think, it was um, another one that I had in mind. Who I'm loath to say because I'm not his biggest fan now, for understandable reasons, is probably James Milner. I think he um, he was a very sort of solid, consistent performer for the time that he was at the club, and I think in that. Um, annoyingly his final season with us in particular he was um he was he was a real sort of he helped to put out quite a few fires when we had a lot of injuries and was his sort of versatility around the entire basically everywhere on the pitch that he could play was um it really was quite the um quite the tool to have within the squad and i think yeah he was as much as as much as i now understandably feel very differently about him um he was uh he was definitely a good player for us, and he was. Um, it was. He's a name that's not really spoken about too much, and not really remembered that well for his time at City now. Nowadays,
1: yeah. Dom laughed at me when I uh, I suggested uh, Emmanuel Adebayor because you don't go from, you know, a, 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 the likes of of Joe and Caicedo up front finishing mid table in the Premier League to having Aguero and Jacko and winning the title. But, but Dom wasn't having it.
3: Mainly because City signed Tevez in the same window. <laughs> <as well. laughs> Soars.
1: Yeah. All right. I'll uh, I'll give you that one. I I, I, I suspect your names have been uh, will go down a lot better than mine did. Anyway, I think uh, I think you've uh, I think you've picked some good ones. Um, but that brings us to an end for this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much to my guests, Joe Butterfield. Yeah. Thank you very much. And Don Farrell. Thanks, mate. Join me again next week to review the games against Palace and Forest. That was the
0: Blue Moon podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's.
12: We won the league last 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 gasp, come back. I mean, at home, in front of our own fans, a thrilling title race. That title win just felt a bit special because the, every single second of it, I'd been invested into it completely. Yeah. This title race. Whenever I've ever gone to a match, I've sat there with my bath roll and my chicken balti pie, going, "I might see a moment of history today at this game, or it's either, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm now living before an iconic moment I've not seen yet, and I find I finally seen one of these iconic moments. Yeah. Like it's like it's it's going to happen eventually, and there it was. Then that that game was just amazing but also so bad at the same time (laughs) and it was just one of the the best things about about that game it was just the whole Liverpool and it was even funnier when we found out that Liverpool had scored minutes after we'd scored our third goal because there's just the clip of just Salah thinking oh I've won the Premier League Liverpool's is brilliant and then then we're going no it's 3-2 at the end turns out
1: you've not
0: you can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast And join us again next time for another episode.